0: You are listening to the Tour des Flaneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Cheers, chaps! Cheers! Well, that is a familiar sound to listeners of life in the Peloton because my name is Richard Moore. I'm with Francois Tomasot. Hello, Hi Francois. Dear. Oh, dear Francois. And I not already. And we're joined for the first time by Mitch Docker. Happy to be here. It's been a long time coming. I have hear you introing me the whole week, the last two weeks. So big, big build up. It big has been up. a big build up. Mitch Docker, professional cyclist and purveyor of local Andorran beer. <laughs> I thought it'd be a really good idea. I don't know how long it'll go on for,
2: but I thought, well, you know, Francois has got the cheese and the wine going. And I thought, why not try and find a beer every day? Mm. And I knew I could start with a beer because I knew of a local brewery here in Andorra. And I'll just say a quick little bit about it. Boris Craft Beer. And what we're drinking today is a golden ale. It's not a beer I normally go for because it can be a bit hit and miss. It's a bit like a home brewery. In terms of sometimes you just get one with no gas. Sometimes you get one that's overgassed, But that's what I like about it. Because, you know, it's not coming from a massive brewery. And um, it's pretty aromatic. It comes from about 1,300 meters of altitude. There's three other beers I have there. A white ale and a dark ale. We've sort of got their middle one. Andor is not really known for their beer. Not really known for their wine. They've got a couple of vineyards up here. So I thought, why not let's start
1: with a, a local beer. And being called Boris, it has a a, a big uh, white foamy head. It's <laughs> little, British, little British political <laughs> joke. What are your there. thoughts? Um, it's yeah, very, very nice. It's nice. Very nice. I mean, what else do you it expect me to say? No, it is very really nice. Cool.
2: Yeah. Oh, good.
3: Mm. Quite wheaty. Yeah, it's it's funny because it smells when it's, you smell it. You you think it's going to be quite bitter. It's not actually too bitter. It's not too sweet either. Yeah. Twelve IBUs. W- well balanced. Mm. Yeah, no, good stuff. Could be a little cooler, but I mean, the, the fridge in the hotel is not. He's always got a complaint, eh?
2: Of you course, know? yeah. When <laughs> I mean, you
3: have to, you know.
2: We're drinking
1: hey.
3: it at English
2: temperature,
1: so well, it's, well, a it's a shame Lionel isn't here. Yeah, he had been probably
2: slightly too cold for Lionel, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, he,
1: he would like that. Mitch, have you been watching the Tour de France? You've been following it? I have been watching it as much as I
2: can, but um, for all listeners don't know, I was away last week riding from the north of Sweden to the south of Sweden. Pretty much all day 10 hour days on the bike And the cycling podcast was fantastic for me To keep in touch with the tour I was able to list watch the 30 minute highlights When I got in at about 10 o'clock at night But to hear the intricate stuff that happened in the race I tuned into the podcast every day Plenty of time to kill out on the road And uh, just to get used to hearing you two guys ramble on Was great I haven't seen heaps I saw the first week which As a cyclist you love seeing it when it's horrible weather And hectic, (laughs) except for when you're in the race. And when you're not in the race, you're just like, bring it, bring it on. And I was loving watching that.
1: Well, if you've been getting your information from us, it will be around about 60% accurate. So...
3: Um, (laughs) and 40% fun I mean that's the thing
1: it's well yeah it's going to be a lot of fun having you with us because it's your first time really although you've been doing your podcast for a few years now it's your first time working as a journalist at at the race and it's going to be fascinating to take you into the mixed zone a, a term that you you weren't familiar with although you've been in many mixed zones in your time but that's where the journalists meet the riders and it's become more important in COVID times because that is a far more organised and structured thing than it used to be. And, well, we'll go tomorrow and I'm sure a few of the riders will get a bit of a shock when they see Mitch Stocker in the, on the on the other side of the fence having joined the dark side.
4: I'm
2: actually really interested to see what that's like because I know myself coming into a race and it's very rare that I do, but you come into a race as a rider, you're in the bubble. And when I, I don't mean COVID bubble, I mean cycling bubble, race bubble. And you think everyone in the whole world is watching you at that moment and that might be true with the tour de france but other races you get that feeling too but actually once you're outside that bubble you realize no one really cares about the race or everyone might have forgotten there was two or three stages or whatever and as an outsider coming back into that bubble it's quite weird that dynamic and you're trying to guys you know and teams that your own team that know you so familiar you're not part of that group at the moment and you feel like a real outsider. So I'm wondering what that's like now, not necessarily going to my team, but just coming to the race and seeing other riders and them seeing me as a non-racer, how they're going to treat me.
3: They might be worried. They might think you'll retire or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it's, it's not too far away,
1: is it? Retirement. It's on the horizon. No, that's right. Well, a bit, I've already announced that at the end of this year will
2: be my retirement um, after Paris-Roubaix. So it is that... Opportunity, and maybe it'll be looked at like that. You know, guys, be like, "Oh, Mitch is, you know, he's he's,
0: already he's, he's, yeah, he's going to be a journalist,
2: you know, whatever." But mm. I think it's really cool to be able to come here. I've never been to the tour. I've never raced it. I've been and watched the Elise before Shamsalise, but I've never been day to day with the tour. Mm. And I was a little bit disappointed to not be watching you know the mountain stage i was still coming back from sweden to watch the Andorra stage a home stage for me but i thought hang on i've got heaps of racing
1: to watch so i'm looking forward to this next week well that leads very nicely into our first question this is our press conference episode which we do on the rest day where we ask you for questions we've had loads we it was a slow start this week but we've had loads and i'll tell you now we're not going to get through them all so apologies for that but we've got some really great ones and some ones that we Uh, Well I think Mitch will be able to answer. Let's hear one of those now.
4: This one comes from John Chase. Hey guys it's John here friend of the podcast just watching on Eurosport the stage into Andorra and they're talking on the commentary about how they'll be going around lots of the roads where the pros train. Woods will be going past his front door on the descent but in pro cycling, is there such a thing as home advantage? If you know the roads, does it help you or is it does it not really make that much difference? And the second question for Mitch. I've uh, been looking at your Scandinavian road trip on Instagram. So in the spirit of life of the peloton, what would be your go-to pizza topping? Ideally with a nice cool bottle of Orval. Thanks. Two very profound questions
1: there. Um, and Mitch, I you think you're the, the best person to answer. Certainly the second one, but the first one as well. You're you're an Andorra resident too. Home advantage? I think so. I really do.
2: Like, it can work against you because you can get to a bottom of a climb and know, you know what, my best time up here is 20 minutes. So at least at minimum, I've got 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes of suffering. But on the flip side, you know the little bits where you can relax go hard like i remember a few years ago we were doing a welter stage up here the main road all the way through Andorra, right to the top it's a 25k climb but i knew there's flat bits there's hard bits there's flat bits there's easy bits and potentially for guys if they hit a really steep bit not knowing that it was flat in a couple k you're like, ah, oh, I'm never going to make this climb 18k to go. But I was like, I've got to dig deep here because I know I've got recovery for a minute or two and then go again. Outside of Andorra, one place that really does help, Belgium Classics. It's the only reason why the Belgies go so well. Home ground advantage. They're not even really that good of riders. It's just because <laughs> they know the roads. <laughs>
1: oh, That's all it is. Brilliant. Provocative already.
3: Sepkus, you know, made the point uh, by winning the stage today and he said, you know, that he knew... The road down to the finish very well, and uh, hopefully, well, obviously, it helped. So, yeah, confirm that home advantage seems to work
1: and to have people that you know. Um, you know, a lot of the riders, Dan Martin, I mentioned last night's podcast, he was very emotional at Fish because he had his family out. Um, Sep had his girlfriend and her family on the final climb, and definitely uh, a factor, I'm sure, in his performance. I don't know about flat roads in Andorra because I asked you for tips for a three hour <laughs> flattish <laughs> ride today, and I, I'm in. I'm in bits and <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this episode because um, what you told me, the places you told me to ride were anything but flat. They were
2: the flat
3: rides. So, that's, so. that's as flat as mm. it gets. I'm yeah. um, I, I at a record of the sh- uh, duty-free shops and uh, you know I'm not tired at all. I spent <laughs> three hours in every shop there and you know it's all right.
1: <laughs> and Mitch, pizza topping. There's two things there. I ate
2: a lot of pizzas in Sweden, but they weren't pizzas as you know. They were Svena pizzas. And if any, anyone out there is, speaks Swedish, it just means normal pizza. And they were really normal pizzas. They served a purpose. And the pizza topping to go for up there is Hawaiian ham and pineapple.
1: Oh, controversial. I <laughs> oh. hope Daniel's kebab not listening.
2: <laughs> I didn't go for a kebab pizza. I just couldn't do it. There's <laughs> a whole lot of shaved meat on top. with like a yogurt dressing on top of that i was just like you know what mid-ride i can't do a kebab pizza but my go-to pizza if it was going to be what would i ah look i really love a genovese bit of pesto on there sun-dried tomato bit of parma ham you know a bit of rocket on top i'm a pizza man i love pizzas
5: hi richard francois and mitch it's adrian pew a friend of the podcast from essex My question is in regard to the time limit in the individual stages of the Tour de France. Could you explain in some detail how this is calculated and how it's communicated to the groupetto? Is there a leader, for instance, that um, ensures that everybody knows what the time is required? How does that actually get calculated? How is it communicated? And as it's a movable feast um, are they able to estimate relatively early on what will be required it's interesting to see Cav finishing at the front but I'd like to know how he knows what he has to do when he's at the back, thanks very much, really been enjoying the tour take care.
1: Thanks for your question Adrian it's a good question, someone else asked a question about Mark Cavendish as well, I'll get to that in a moment but um, Mitch, the Grappetto don't want to typecast but you must have been in a few Grappettos in your time how does it work because we kind of think we know how it used to work, where quite a large group would form. One or two kind of older, more experienced writers, someone like Bernard Eisel, um, for a while, would, would take control and uh, and dictate things. It looks a bit more fractured now. It doesn't look quite as organized as it used to be.
2: Totally. That's exactly what I was about to say. It's a dying art, a dying thing. used to be a bit of a safety net and there was a bit of look after each other from different teams you know not to go off on a tangent here but there was a few years ago in a in a giro where I was in a bad way and uh, almost brought to tears because I couldn't keep up with this group at all I was really sick and I remember um, Pizzato and Bernie Isle just went to the front of the group and said hey let's just slow it down you know let's keep him in this group I can't imagine that would happen today it's sort of a bit Every man for himself and in in my experience, I always look for Quick-Step. Michael Morkov's a really good guy and if I see him up the in a climb, sort of two corners in front of me if I'm dropped, I really make my race end if I can get to the Quick-Step train because you know you're safe with them. They're strong, they stay together. That's one thing that they've, they do really well is that they look after their sprinter, whether it was you know Viviani back in the day as well, Gaviria. You knew if you could get to those guys, you're going to get a group around you and you're going to get in and they were calculated. To talk about that calculation. For me, I always calculate that myself in the bus the night before and make myself sort of three numbers on different speeds. So you know, because you do hear all these numbers flying around. Someone yells out from the side of the road, oh, you're 20 minutes down. And then you hear from the back of the car behind someone goes past, you guys, you're you're an hour behind. And then suddenly you lose your way. So if you've got in your mind, okay, average, we're averaging 36. That's what's going to be close to that. And as you get closer, once you hear when the winner finishes, you get a direct time, a direct uh, average speed, and then you can do some quick calculations. It's handy to have someone who's good at maths. In the old times, we used to have Michael Hepburn in Orica. And he was, he's a mathematician, so you could always <laughs> rely on him.
3: It's it struck me how many, even the old guy, the old guys, uh, many riders are very good at calculations. I mean, you're the, some of the consultants on TV within. Two minutes, they'll tell you. You know the standings on the uh, on the GC, the the, the the time cuts, the the average speeds. It's part of the job, you know, to to be to, to have some maths. There was funny things about the Gruppetto I heard uh, Jackie Durand, French TV, was saying, "Wow, well, well, Jackie Durand was a master of the the old school Gruppetto. and and it was it was saying that in his day, and we saw we saw it happen quite a few times on this Tour de France. But in his day, the the guys who were leading the sprinter up the hill. The, sometimes were uh, like. 100 yards uh, you know in front of the of the guy and actually what jackie was saying that in his time they were actually asking spectators to push their leaders you know but not not you know that, that i mean you couldn't be blamed for it because they were they were a 100 yards in, uh, up front i don't know if it still happens it makes <laughs> look shocked at
1: that <laughs> never there is a
2: cheeky note on that i learned a few years ago that if you ride with the group out on those steep climbs you're not actually going to get pushed because there's too many guys to get pushed So, cheekily, before the last climb, maybe like a Zonkaland or, you know, in the Vuelta, Angrelou, you got to boost ahead. You've got to get that 50, 100 metres in front of the groupetto, and then you're sailing. You're that only guy. You've got to be on your own.
1: That's when the pushes come. I, I, I mean, it's a, fa- it's a fascinating subject. We've been getting some great insights into it from Tim de They have been sort of doing their own thing, De Quinn and Quickset. They've been forming their own mini groupetto to, to look after Mark Cavendish. Um, he said that Cavendish rode for five hours at his limit of the other day. And Stephen Fortune asked a question about that what does that mean? Um, i mean it doesn't he he was talking about ftp and things like that it's 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 a it's a judgement of how what what can mark can just sustain for 5 hours um basically um, and they were I think when the way that Tim De Clark described it was that he would be riding as as hard as he could without dropping Mark Cavendish, and so he was relying on Cavendish's feedback, I suppose. Another thing I've heard about the Grappetto is, and, and Bernie Eisler used to talk about how they really made up a lot of time on descents, and he um, he told me a great story once about a stage. The, the ring of hell, they called it, from from uh, Luchon to Poe um, in 2010. Cavendish had fallen off near the start of the stage. He hit a football, fell off, and he was in a bad way. And they were off the back, really off the back. And, uh, and they really only survived that day because of the descents. But apparently now, the, this, the racing is, is happening on the descent as well as on mm. the climbs. And and the GC guys are really gunning down these descents in a way that they didn't used to. It, there was almost a, a kind of neutralisation on descents uh, among the GC riders, but that's not the case anymore.
2: No, I think, look, I think the group definitely don't lose time on descents and whether they gain as much time as before is maybe questionable. Where they make time is in those valleys as well. You get a big group. But if I was in this race, I would definitely be not worrying if I knew Quickstep were behind. I would be going back to those guys rather than trying to push on myself and maybe put myself in the red. Go back to them. You've seen time and time again they're safe they're calculated they know what they're doing they're getting through it have confidence in those guys they're not going to put cav out of this race and you know i think they're not going to put themselves out of this race if cav's not going to make it i'm sure he would just be left on his own at some point he would tell them they're not going to put four guys out of the race trying to save him
0: the cycling podcast at the 2021 tour de france powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapients.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
1: Thank you very much indeed to Super Sapiens, our title sponsor. Um, In conjunction with Super Sapiens, we're running a competition whereby you can send us a clip of audio telling us in less than a minute, although we're making a bit of an exception tonight, um, why and how you would use Super Sapiens. You stand a chance if you enter our competition of winning three months worth of the uh, Super Sapiens biosensors for your upper arm which uh, track your glucose levels let's hear tonight's entry uh, and if you would like to enter this competition, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and you'll find instructions on how to enter but let's hear from dr tim green
6: hi Cycling podcast this is tim green calling from lockdown in sydney and with inspiration from Fran- francois and uh, with apologies to Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats I'd like to make my pitch in a musical form The silicon chip inside my head
3: gets switched to overload I don't want to go for to keep my bike at home and my coach doesn't understand it he always said I was good as gold and he can see no reasons cause there are no reasons what reasons do you need to ride I don't like bonking tell me why I don't like bonking I've got a reason
1: Well, Mitch and Francois, you were you were both singing along <laughs> to that. I mean, it, 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 a bit of a bit of he was straining a bit at the end, but it was a very good effort.
3: And It was a bit more than a minute, but we well, liking that like that slide. You mm. impressed Francois. We're, well, we're Monday, and uh, yes, some writers don't like rest day. They could they they could sing. I don't like Mondays because uh, <laughs> on, on on Grand Tours usually it's Mondays. No, it was a good effort. I mean, the 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 picking the guitar picking part was uh, a little bit. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. How could I Here say? it comes. <laughs> go on, go on. <laughs> no no I mean it was it was well applied you, know, you can tell <laughs> you you can tell you had rehearsed quite a bit but the, no I mean it was great fun and, uh, and a good and a good way to uh, excellent to, yeah good great entry and and to be in, in uh, just just a tip to, to be inside a minute you know you can you can speed up the tape a little bit <laughs> <laughs> there we go there we go um, well thanks for that Tim that
1: was really a great effort and uh, if you'd like to enter the competition to win three months super sapiens go to the cycling podcast to thanks for very much indeed to them again we wouldn't be here without their support so we're very grateful let's go to another question
7: hello everyone my name is Anthony from Dayton Ohio and my question is in regards to the state of the white jersey with the GC contenders getting younger and younger nowadays you almost have to win the yellow to earn the white jersey what do you think the tour organizers should do to spice in this back up especially with the contender staying younger for a longer period of time Do you think that once you win yellow, you shouldn't be eligible for weight anymore? Or do you think they should make the white jersey an over-30 jersey?
1: Thanks for your question, Anthony. It's something we've been talking about, white jersey. Um, You know, it is a bit... I I don't agree that... disqualifying a rider from winning if they've worn the yellow jersey would work because it would then be a, awarded to and worn by the, the the second or third best rider on gc potentially um you know it's, it it rings a bit hollow doesn't it vingagol wearing the white jersey when pogacar is the, the
3: rightful wearer yeah but because i mean it's all, it's all because of the sponsors i mean you know you, you have companies uh you know paying for for these jerseys and if you don't if the jersey is not worn, you're in the you you could you couldn't ask Pogatra to wear the yellow jersey for an hour, then the white for an hour, and the polka. Some last year, remember he won uh, how many jerseys did he win? So I mean, it, it's happened. I mean. As everybody knows, in 19, I think it was 1969, uh, Eddie Merck won all the jerseys on offer, you know, and uh, he, he, you could, I mean, it was it's, it's not it's not a consolation prize for a writer to think, oh, I'm only wearing this because I, I was second to so and so. So I don't think the idea of you know uh, giving him uh, giving the jerseys to somebody else is a good idea. The, the, the age limit, it's an endless discussion because if let's imagine they they they, they take it down to 24, 23, and then for you know and then these generate you know these teen generation sort of uh- kind of disappears and then you, you're back to not normal, but you, I mean, then all of a sudden, how, how many uh, under 23 riders will you, will you have an, in a grand tour? So it could just be
1: a, a cycle that we're in. Um, you know, this might not be a, a lasting trend. Who knows?
3: Um, the, 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 the suggestion of a, of a gray jersey for the, the, mm. the, the over 35 riders has been, has been uttered many times. I I think it could be nice, yeah, it could be cool. I mean, but who would sponsor it? (laughs) I think there are lots
1: of companies that Hmm. would sponsor it, Um, Francois. Hmm. Loads of of companies. I mean, there are more companies aimed at older people (laughs) Because they've got more money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the mind boggles at the possible sponsors of the grey jersey. Who's winning the
2: grey jersey at the moment? Well, I'll throw that out to you. I, I, it's a good question.
1: It depends on what age limit we're talking about. Here, I reckon thirty-five would be yeah. nice. Yeah. I mean, well, this discussion leads very nicely into the next question.
7: <laughs> Hello, cycling podcast team. A simple question with perhaps not such a simple. Answer for my twelve-year-old daughter Neve, who is a budding cycling fan, especially of the women's tour. I recently watched the Lance Armstrong documentary. Alejandro Valverde. Why do I bristle when I see him riding his bike? Still, many thanks, Catherine Neve in Nottingham.
1: Well, thanks very much for your question on behalf of your twelve-year-old daughter, and I guess yourself as well. It's, it's something we've we've spoken about a lot because, I mean. Alejandro Valverde did serve a, a two-year suspension for his involvement in Operation Puerto. It was delayed. It was a long time until he served that suspension. It's a long time since he served it and came back. And he's, he's a tricky figure because, on the one hand, he has this history. He was certainly part of cycling's doping problem when that was, uh, we think, at its, at its worst around the you know, early, mid-2000s. He was part of that, for sure. Um, I, you know, if we assume that um, uh, the, the sport is cleaner and that he's subject to the same tests and scrutiny as everybody else, then we have to assume that he's been competing clean since he came back. We have to assume that. Nevertheless, of course, it's, it, it's sometimes uncomfortable to watch Valverde. Maybe less than so that because he is
3: declining finally in, mm. in his 42nd but, but it, year. It also depends on the image of the guy because, I mean, he's, he's a kind of a withdrawn character, doesn't speak English. Nobody asked the same question, the same question by David Miller. Who also was suspended came back, uh, rode his bike, and everybody found that totally normal. So why do you feel comfortable seeing David Miller ride his bike uh, after a suspension and not uh, uh, with Valverde? I've, I guess it's just a perception of the guy uh, more than yeah. yeah. And, and and Miller, I suppose,
1: took responsibility and spoke about it a sure,
3: lot. Sure, sure. Uh, but that's the thing. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Valverde chose well that's the way it is is not very talkative even to the Spaniards is is it, you know so and and i mean it's part of the history of of uh, doping in spain that every time you ask the question, question is, there's a big o- omerta about it so that, 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 that they've not spoken out very frankly uh, about, about it maybe because some of, a, a lot of them and probably Valverde himself thinks they've been you know uh, unjustly treated i mean that's i mean that's of course disputable so i think really the, the 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 two different approaches that David Miller to Valverde might explain that it's been
1: so long now since Valverde came back that we've y- you don't define him purely by the fact that he doped and served a doping ban. The, the, there there are all the wins, the the style in which he wins, um, that's very appealing to lots of people for obvious reasons. He's a, an exciting. He's always been an exciting racer to watch. There's also. A sense that we've picked up on and maybe mitch can confirm this but he seems to be very popular among his peers and there was the way that he reacted yesterday you know i would have fancied him to catch sepkus on the descent and win the stage when he crossed the line second uh, it would have been a huge win for his team uh you know who are kind of needing a big win he was very very gracious in defeat and uh, you could see in the exchange with sepkus that he was you know, very generous towards him. And that that's part of the picture as well. You know, people are three-dimensional. Um, they're they are not, they shouldn't just be defined by one thing. Um, but I, I completely understand and It's something we, we're asked a lot about Valverde in particular. He's a sort of lightning rod. He's hes very liked within the peloton. He's one of those guys, and uh,
2: I feel like it's a dying breed too, is that the guy, when he's in the leader's jersey, you don't know it. You might go underneath him in the corner or chop him up. He might be leading the Vuelta Spaniel. You don't hear about it. Whereas quite often now you hear about it from other riders, they're very vocal, you know, very physical out there. He's very humble, and you you just you have a good presence around him. He's a really nice guy to race with, and quite often you're happy to you know let him take that wheel in front of you because of his history as a results and his stature as a rider, and also his personality. He's in the peloton. He's one of those guys that a lot of guys look up to as a as a as a pro. Um, because of his results and his character.
1: And his commitment, which is extraordinary. I don't know if you've seen the Netflix series, the Movistar Netflix series, Mitch, have you? I've only seen season one. Right, season two is excellent, but seasons one and two are fascinating as a a portrait of Valverde too, because you realise, and I was speaking to somebody about this the other day, how important he is to that team and how perhaps he is a problem for that team too, because he's such a central figure that everything revolves around him and on the one hand they have always relied on him heavily for results and when he doesn't deliver as he didn't last year the, the whole team suffers you wonder if when he eventually does retire that team will be somehow either liberated or will really suffer in, in his absence it will that will be an interesting thing to watch
4: the green bullet
1: that's his that's his nickname.
4: hi guys a while ago fellow podcast listener Hugh Pickering and I were discussing and extolling the virtues of listening to sport commentary on the radio. I was telling him all about how much cricket I've listened to over the years from all around the world. That got us to wondering why there isn't, or maybe there is, but we can't find it, any cycling commentary that is based on the radio. Is it a medium that has ever followed cycling? We just think it would be a really perfect format for a nice long day at the tour, just listening to it lilt by much like the cricket. It's also interesting how there's been somewhat of a demise in radio commentary, but actually a sharp uptake of spoken word podcasting analysis of sporting events. Yeah, so we were just wondering if you guys could put us onto anything anywhere from around the world, preferably in English, where radio commentary of cycling events would still be available. Cheers!
1: Thanks for the question. Radio commentary. I mean, it's almost been a big thing in, in France.
3: Oh well, yeah, there's certainly lots of radio commentary of cycling in France. Uh, but I mean, it's it's part of the, the the history of radio in different countries. I mean, in the US, you've got all these local channels playing you know country music or styles of music all the time with names like WCTN. You never know what they mean, you know. Uh, in Britain, it's it's the BBC a lot, you know. And uh, in France, you have all these uh actually in, in in the in the days of the uh, you know pirate radios like radio caroline and all these radios in the 60s in in britain we had the same in france some of some of them were based in andorra actually sud radio others in luxembourg uh, rtl and all these radios surviving and, and are huge in france huge media i mean the, when the, the french guy when he gets up in the morning most of them he doesn't take a newspaper and, and read the news in the you know in the tube or in the train commuting he listens to the radio like you know when he's shaving and either listening to rtl europe number one rmc uh there's lots of those and, and they're all kind of news based uh radio stations and all competing against each other all these radios have guys on the tour that they, they do like also it's not it's not a 24 hour it's not the full stage always you know commentary but there's lots of little interventions like okay and and like you're you're listening to france info which is a you know news radio and France Info will, will say every 15 minutes and we're back, then we go back to the route the tour to, you know, and, and, the, and the guy says, well, this is what's happening. So it's the case in France. I think it's the case in most, uh, you know, uh, I think it's the case in Italy and Spain as well. Um, I'm afraid, yeah, that there is there isn't such a, such a radio in uh, in 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 English because just because the the tradition of radio broadcast in 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 Britain and in in English speaking countries is different.
2: I totally agree. This is something that I've been thinking about for years because I do the exact same thing with cricket. Back in Australia, I put ABC Grandstand on and I listen to ball by ball of the Boxing Day Test and the Australian Ash. Uh, test series and i'm thinking when i'm not in these races i would love to put the headphones in and listen to the race and what i do now with gcn is i just put it in and listen to the tv commentary but the problem is with tv commentary you don't have to paint the picture and that's the brilliance of radio is that and when you listen to cricket they're painting the picture they're telling he's running in from the southern end and they're talking about the crowd and with cycling you can do that you can paint the picture of the climb the switchbacks the crowd Mm. And I think there is a big, there is a, there's an opportunity there, and yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, the history of the tour has been made by radio. I mean, the the the, the fact that. The tour has become so huge in France, was because the people. I mean, my father, who is now ninety nine, they would they would listen to the tour on the radio. There was the only link they had with the tour, and the newspapers at the time issued two editions a day about the Tour de France, and so they were all waiting. You know, my, my father tells me that they didn't they didn't have radios, all of them. So they went to the guy with the radio, and they were they were all sitting in front of radio listening to the Tour de France, and then they went to the bakers or whoever the grocers were. A, a, you know. A, a, The blackboard with the name of the riders and the times and everything—that's the way, you know—they they 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 lived and loved the tour, and it. as you said, uh, Mitch, it added a kind of a poetry because you couldn't see anything. Yeah. So it was all imagination. And for these kids, you know, uh, they, they heard about these name, uh, names, you know, uh, Bobé, Copy or even before that, my, my father's idol was Paischer, who won the tour in 1936. And, but they, they had no idea what what the, well, they had idea what the guy looked like because the pictures in the newspaper the next day, but they never saw them writing in, in, in real life. Yeah, my, uh, my sense of,
1: of, of, the Tour de France on the radio forming a sort of oral backdrop to life in France was, uh, m- my first exposure to this was a film, The Vanishing, by the the, the the film of the Tim Crabby novel. Now, we featured Tim Crabby last year because he also wrote a fantastic book about cycling uh, called The Rider. Um, but he wrote a, a psychological thriller called The Golden Egg, and it was a, a film, uh, it was made into a film in 1988 um, called The Vanishing. And in the original non-Hollywood version, this plays out across... France, I, I believe. And all, all you can hear is the Tour de France being being talked about on the radio in petrol stations and so on. And it, it's a, I don't know why, it, 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 but it, it's the most powerful noise that you hear somehow. And it, it forms a backdrop to the film, but also your senses of it forming the backdrop to life in France at that time. Go and check that film out if you want to be absolutely terrified.
0: Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2021 Tour de France. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
1: Thanks to Science and Sport, our long-time sponsor. Very grateful to them for their support. But not even Science and Sport could make today's ride bearable. It was just about doable but I am done in now. Um, If you want 25% off your Science & Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25 at the checkout. SISCP25 at the checkout. We're also running a competition in conjunction with Science & Sport. Guess the winner of each Sunday's stage and win 80 pounds worth of Science & Sport goodies. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com to find out how to enter. Um, we have a winner from yesterday. John McAllister correctly predicted that Sepp Kuss would win the stage. So congratulations, John. We'll be in touch to send you your prize if you want to enter next week's competition, the final one of the tour, uh, to predict the winner on Sunday into Paris. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Let's hear another question.
8: Philip McCullough here from County Armagh in Northern Ireland. Uh, Recently new listener to the pods, just before the start of this tour actually, just decided to sort of get, try and get back into cycling and then just found you guys and I've I've loved them. So if you've noticed that uh, you've been getting some downloads uh, from County Armagh dating back to some of the older podcasts, then that is myself. I've been rinsing through them. Really love them, so keep them coming. My question was now, bear in mind, I I am new to cycling, sort of. I, I always watched it with my dad when I was younger, but I've sort of gotten back into it now, so I come from, like, a sort of a different sport background, so this question might be a bit stupid, so apologies for that. But... They always talk in other sports about historical matchups they'd love to have seen, like Brazil from '82 against Barcelona, or that Spain squad that won the Euros, two Euros in the World Cup. They'd love to have seen games like that. I was just wondering if you guys would love to have seen an historical matchup between maybe two or three riders up say month on two. What would be your ideal race? Your top three riders you'd love to have seen race up. Mont Ventoux or Abdoez, whatever just a, a massive mountain stage that you think would have been unreal um, and I hope that question isn't too stupid. Thanks for your question Philip not a silly question
1: at all very interesting one I thought and uh, well it's great to hear from a new listener and uh, I was wondering who that was in County Armagh downloading all these old episodes <laughs> only joking but um, that's it's great to hear that you are um, catching catching up doing a Doing a Kate Wagner there and uh, <laughs> and filling in your knowledge of the sport um uh, by going back. That's great. I uh, hope you've enjoyed our tour coverage as well. Um historical matchups. It's a tough one, isn't it? Because I guess a lot of rivalries only mean something in the context of the rivalry. So Copy Bartley, Eno, Le Monde, are uh, struggling now, but the fifties there were there were lots of great rivalries, like Bobby, Cobbley. Kobe. Kubler, Robic was a bit earlier, but, I, you know, copy Bartley again. Um, I guess, you know, I, was, I at the start of the tour, I mentioned Bernard Eno's record in Grand Tours. It's just absolutely extraordinary. Never finished lower than third in a Grand mm-hmm. Tour. Um, how would he have gone against Eddie Merckx? You know, had the two of them gone head to head, who'd have prevailed? That, that That's an impossible one to know. I don't, I don't know, I mean I'd have loved to have seen two of the most stylish riders um, of the last 100 years of cycling go head-to-head Jacques Honcatil and Mitch Docker
3: We had that debate with uh, Lionel in the car the other day about you know, about uh, yeah, about Merckx's ability to ride, a, 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 you know, a modern bike and perform well against the guys of today. I still think if someone with the body, the mind, and the parameters of Eddie Merckx, you know, took on cycling today, he would still be among the very best mm. because apparently, you know, everything w- was there. You know, but it's always difficult to say. If if I was looking for a far fetched uh, answer, I would say, and I said it before, I think on the pod, but uh, some some guys who had raised before the war was saying Octave Lapis the guy who, who, who you know came to the uh, to the top of the Galibier I mean who, who was the first great climber of Tour de France in 1910 was the best you know was a monster like a guy who never set you know his foot on the ground Who was really uh, you know, I would like to see Octave Lapiz now on, on 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 Mitch's bike to see what mm. he uh, what he does with it. You know, I, I'm sure this guy, s- the same guy with the mustache and everything. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a he had a great he had a great touch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean the the the, the, the same guy these days uh, g- going on a ride with you, uh, Richard, in, in 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 Andorra, I think would do better than you do. That's for sure. <laughs> so Richard Moore uh, against Octave
2: Lapiz,
1: of, cor- <laughs> of
3: course, of course, of <laughs> course, he would. <laughs>
2: I was watching this film the other day, and probably everyone's seen it, but I'm late to the game. It's called The the Water Carriers, I think. Stars and Water Carriers. Stars and Water Carriers. Yeah. And I was watching it, and I was looking at the bikes there, and yes, they're old. They're, you know, from... What is that, the 70s? 70s, yeah. yeah. But I was seeing to myself, those bikes would be beautiful to ride. They would not be as slow as you think. You know, you look at them, they're old, you know, steel bikes, but those bikes would fly. And I know we've got better technology and lighter bikes now. But I don't think we need to underestimate how good the bikes have been at the top of their line
1: um, all those years ago. On that film, uh, Mitch, um, it featured in our our Giro series last year. We had an interview with the director, Jorgen Leth. It, it follows the 1973 Giro d'Italia. It's, it's a great film. And uh, we had an interview with Leth um, during our Giro. So if you want to go and check it out. I think the, the rivalries I'm most interested in are the rivalries that are... That, that, that are there um, but which so rarely materialise you know I, I think of the bonin cancellara years when th- we never seem to have them both at the very top of their game the, the one we might never see is uh, Pogacar against Bernal well be that, that's the thing I mean, at the <laughs> moment well, you know, there's a possibility of at the Vuelta having Pogacar, Roglic and Bernal and that, that's, the right, that's the battle that everybody wants to see but we want to see it when they're all at their best mm, that's the thing and maybe maybe the tour next year but we've had this in the past and you know, we've had Froome, Contador, Nibali, Quintana at one point all mm-hmm. of them look to be on a similar level, but we never quite saw them all go head to head.
3: It's in the same shape. kind of a debate with the greatest of all time. I mean, it, if you if you go to tennis forums, you know they you've got the Federer, the Nadal, and now the Djokovic fans, and it's 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 an it, you know it's an endless question, and 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 you know it's it's more a matter of belief and fandom than than a matter of. And, a,
1: and everybody knows the greatest tennis player of all time is Andy Murray. <laughs> <laughs>
9: Hi there, my name's Catherine. I'm a friend of the podcast and I'm listening in London. I have a question about ethics and sponsorship, which I think is probably gonna make you guys and your listeners roll their eyes because it comes up all the time in cycling. But I think it's particularly pertinent right now. eh? Um, And I think that's because last week we saw that Team Bike Exchange announced um, new sponsorship from the Saudi Arabian government um, and an alignment of values with them. Bahrain Victorious, who two years ago when they were Bahrain Merida, were at pains to distance themselves from the human rights record of the Bahraini government um, and accusations of sports washing, but who now have a really visible presence on social media of the Bahraini royal family. And like when Landa crashed out of the Giro, there was that strange sort of ghost-written tweet thanking Prince Nasser directly. So that distancing seems to have disappeared. I'd say to an extent, like Kate's reporting on NextHash, cryptocurrency company, and their kind of murky and dubious background. And just the increased number, I suppose, of fossil fuel companies and um, of petrochemical companies like Ineos, who are one of the worst polluting companies in the world and particularly in the UK. And so I just wonder, like, I understand that Cycling is an expensive sport. I understand that the business model is really shaky. I understand that we all live under capitalism. Like let's take those things as red, but is there a tipping point? Is there a red line of where taking money from some sources too far? Is that the case for riders, for DSs, managers, for you guys as journalists and for the fans? Or has that been sort of existing on a sliding scale for so long that nobody really cares anymore? Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Loving the podcast, loving the vicarious experience of travel in this particular year. Thanks very much.
1: It's a great question, Catherine. I, I, I'm sad to say that some people will roll their eyes. We know this, having tackled it before um, in the uh, very infamous episode we did a few years ago. The, the, our ethical report into cycling. Never have we had so much feedback on an episode, and not all of it was was positive. Because I think sport exists for a lot of people as uh, you know as as a kind of uh, an escape, a refuge, and so, and, th- and this is not. This is this is precisely why a lot of these companies are in it because they are, as you say, um, sort of taking advantage of of that to present themselves in in a way that that softens, at least softens the the image of the company. It, it is a sliding scale. It's been going on for years. Um, ever since cycling was invented, companies with dubious ethics have been involved in in sponsoring because of the way that's the way the business model works. Um. And is there a tipping point? I mean, you know, when you look around and see the teams, where the money's coming from and how it depends, you know, from one or two teams to to now there being quite a big presence of, of sponsors that, you know, you do question their reasons for being involved. And, and, and it, it, it can be quite uncomfortable, I'm sure, for fans as well um, and, and for us journalists. And the, the, the tricky question for us is how to cover it, how much... Time to spend on it, and uh, I don't really know what I don't really know what the answer is. I'm going to put the question rather unfairly to Mitch
3: in the moment, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, Francois. If you take UAE team memories, Bahrain uh, victorious, there was a pioneer in that. It's, that's called soft diplomacy. There, there was a pioneer in that. It was Qatar. Qatar starting they decided. W- uh, this is a country that's not going to have a huge army. That that's never going to have a huge geopolitical power, in, in spite of all the money they have. And and how can they exist on the world scene and on the world stage? And they decided the way they could exist on the world stage would be. Through sports, and they they did they did so well that they they're, they're going to organize the uh, 2022 uh, football World Cup, and uh, and I know there's lots of discussion and debate about it because of the human rights record, because of all the people who were killed during you know building the stadium for the World Cup, but that that's the way they did it, and they started recycling. That the, the, their entry their entry point into sport was when they organized the Tour of Qatar with ASO. Um, because they wanted to see how it worked and and, and they wanted to soften the, their image and to to give to the world the, 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 the impression that they had you know they were uh, because sport is what fair competition peace friendship between the nations and blah 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 and the, the, the values of sport were, were a way to to present the the, the, the the country in a good way so they started with with cycling they're not doing it anymore what, what can you do you can 't prevent you can 't stop Qatar from organizing the sports events you can 't stop a or well, the state of Bahrain or the UAE Emirates to buy to buy a cycling team. I mean, what can you do against that? They have the money to do it. They they, they launch the, the, those teams, and and as you put it, I mean, you know, cycling is is, uh, is is a tricky sport. I mean, all those teams need you know sponsors, and they're very very hard to find. And unfortunately, we you, we don't have a lot of ethical companies or. Organization investing in cycling. There, there was one, there was there 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 were, there were a couple. Onsay, maybe one of the most infamous infamous uh, teams of all time in cycling because of, of, of doping, was actually a charity for. In the blind people. So, so, so you see. Sometimes the the morals that you know that are, are pretty vague. very complicated. I mean, yeah.
1: Mitch. It, I mean, how much do the writers? I don't want to use the word care because I think a lot of them do care. But mm-hmm. I think all of us in all walks of life um, sometimes have to make moral compromises where when we we work for perhaps a newspaper that we don't agree with politically. You know, we've had which m- is my case, which is your mm. case, <laughs> Francois. <laughs> Currently, um, I, I've done it. it's, it's difficult it is really difficult but there are there are some times where where you feel that um the uh, that you you don't really have an awful lot of choice and i guess that's the case for a lot of riders i don't really want to generalize
2: here but i think as a younger rider a lot of guys don't know what the sponsors are and there's an element of they don't care they're trying to become professional and try and survive and hold their head above water and just get in another contract and nine times out of ten you'll ask them what is on say maybe not on say, but a team in the peloton now and around the peloton, most guys don't even know what those companies are. And you, as an older rider, just being a bit older and a bit more mature and wiser, you start to learn about the world and more companies and what they are. And yes, like you say, you could make a stand, you could step away from it, but it, that that is your job, you know, and there's nothing stopping you step away. Um, that option is there, but, you know, I haven't really seen that happen. Like you said, it's, It's a job you've worked hard for and you want to pursue that dream, that
1: passion. Let's hear from Lionel.
6: Hello, everyone. This is Lionel dialling in from Not Andorra. Welcome, Mitch. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts over the final week of the tour. Now, I'm just butting in here because we uh, frequently get questions about the Tour de France's carbon footprint and the impact on the environment. And uh, last year, I made an episode of Kilometre Zero about this very subject. And in the process of researching that and speaking to climate experts, I realize that there are two sides to the equation. One is cycling's impact on the environment, and the other is the environment's likely future impact on a sport like cycling as temperatures rise. Now, I've been doing some research into what's called wet bulb temperatures, and this is a pretty steep learning curve for me i've been reading about it and talking to people it's basically an expression of both temperature and humidity and a wet bulb temperature of about 32 degrees celsius is the point at which outdoor activity becomes impossible because the body simply can't cool down either by sweating or by sheltering in the shade and we're still a long way off that at the moment but uh, the trend is upwards and wet bulb temperatures are likely to become something that impact on a sport like cycling in the future but more on that another time we have had some Uh, questions emailed in and this one by peter burgess is typical of the sort of questions we get asked he wants to know about the tour's carbon footprint and whether there are any initiatives to reduce the number of vehicles traveling with the race now i think people look at the size of the tour de france convoy and wonder do all those bikes and cars need to be there and well they obviously all have a role to play i suppose the ones that you could look at the vip cars You could look at those and think, well, do they have to be uh, clogging up the convoy? But then they're part of the Tour de France and its commercial model. I thought I would ask someone from Skoda, the company which supplies all of the official cars to the Tour de France and has also lent us our very splendid cycling pod car, which is a hybrid model. Skoda has been the official Tour supplier since 2004 and this year the fleet numbers around 250 cars, uh, from the ones that carry race director Christian Prudhomme and the voice of Radio Tour Seb Piquet, uh, down to those VIP cars that uh, give the, uh, the, the sponsors and, and various other people uh, a close-up view of the bunch. Now, I didn't actually realise that Skoda started life in Czechoslovakia as a bicycle manufacturer in 1895, and they didn't make their first car until a decade later. I also didn't know just how much of the Tour de France fleet is now hybrid or fully electric,
10: My name is Christian Philipp, I'm uh, the head of uh, experience marketing at Škoda Auto in the Czech Republic, so in the headquarter. I'm being responsible for all sponsorships and sponsorship management, as well as events, motor shows, let's say on a global scale. The topic of sustainability, it's it's all around. I mean, fair enough to say, and uh, we have been always looking and as well pushing with ASO to find ways how to get this event on a let's say, lower CO2 footprint. I mean, we have to be honest, we have to be, I think, realistic. Getting such an event on a very zero level of CO2, it's quite difficult because, as we all know, we're going to travel with approximately 3,000, 3,500 people every day from stage to stage. There's a lot of trucks around for the TV broadcasting. So the, the CO2 footprint, I think it's massive. And at least for us as being involved as a car manufacturer, we try to reduce as much as possible. So as we have in our fleet and our, let's say, product range now in the meantime, hybrids and as well electric cars, we're really gonna push this now into the race fleet as well. So we are basically at this year on 85%, either hybrid or full electric. The last, let's say, 15% is left over because of they need for certain kind of requirements, light commercial vehicles, for example, etc., where we cannot provide at the moment electric or hybrid solutions.
6: One thing that occurred to me there: one of the things in the Tour de France, especially in the mountains, when the cars are all on the climb, travelling slowly, you know, uh, in low gears, often the fumes coming out of a petrol car, you know, it's not pleasant for the riders. So I mean, is an electric car? You know, free of any emissions.
10: Yeah, it is. It's basically there is no there is no combustion engine in, so there's actually no foam coming out or whatever. So that's basically we, we talked to a lot of riders. We have been using the ENYAC last year the first time. And we got a very immediate feedback from a couple of riders we know as well as Skoda. We have good contact to them, which we are super surprised to see this car, and as well, having said, hey, that's a completely difference if you're gonna ride behind a red ENYAC or if you normally on other races we're gonna drive behind a car with a combustion engine. So that makes a difference because they feel more, let's say healthy, fair enough to say. The only topic is the noise, that is a bit of a different as well mindset change in the, in the peloton actually because you're not going to hear that easily anymore those cars, so we have to add here and there are some noises to the cars that make sure that the riders are going to hear the Red Enya coming or any other cars are coming, so therefore this kind of thing is, is changing the world of cycling in a positive way and we, we what we have been so far received as a feedback is overall very positive surely it's not easy because as well as you mentioned before with charging station infrastructure this is still not fully solved each and everywhere not in france not in any other european country but this is what we are working together as well not only with the tour de france and aso again with uh, the french government but as well from a car manufacturer point of view we try to manage this as well with all the markets to get this infrastructure more developed better developed that Actually the normal customer at the end at at home has the confidence he can go for 400 kilometres without having a problem to find a charging station. And this is where we have to come to. So
6: there are some very obvious benefits to the peloton if the entire Tour de France convoy were to go fully electric in the coming years. Not least the absence of fumes, considering the amount of time that the riders spend in the proximity of cars each day, especially in the mountains when they're being overtaken by the convoy or coming up through the cars to rejoin the peloton going fully electric and not having all of those fumes will be a direct benefit to the riders anyway back to you in Andorra for some more questions
7: hey guys this is mike calling in from the washington dc area Uh, first off great coverage of the race so far really enjoying it great to hear lionel's voice once again and also looking forward to when y'all are finally able to make it to washington dc for a rescheduled show Uh, two quick questions for you here if you don't mind First off, uh, regarding the bidons that are given out during the race, I'd always assumed that these bidons would be close to ice cold, you know, very, very cold, especially in a hot day. Uh, But then when I see a rider putting, you know, six or eight of them down his shirt to bring up to the front, that tells me that they're maybe not all that cold. So I'm curious um, how cold do the racers take their bottles? And then the second question uh, is in relation to uh, Pog, our man in the yellow jersey right now, there's been some speculation about uh, what is fueling his performance, and to be clear, it is just that speculation. Personally, I've kind of always looked at the biological passport as a pretty good failsafe, uh, something that would be pretty hard to beat, and maybe a strong explanation as to why there have been so many fewer doping positives in recent years. However, I've heard no one mention that in terms of defending Pog recently and the likelihood of his being clean. And... I guess what is more, I've read here and there that maybe there are some questions about the um, credibility of the biological passport as a means of of carrying out its mission. So I thought I'd ask you guys, kind of how is the biopassport perceived among the people in and around the Peloton? Is it is it perceived as something you don't want to mess with, uh, a pretty strong tool for eliminating or controlling doping, or is it sort of looked on as something that's maybe less relevant than that. Thanks to the great coverage. Look forward to hearing the rest of the race.
1: Thanks for your question, Mike. Well, two questions. We'll get on to the bottle one in a moment. Um, On the biological passport, it's a really good point that we don't really talk about it an awful lot. Certainly, you know, it's been around now for about 13 years and uh, much was made of it when it came came along. Uh, And... one of its strengths was always, I think, what we didn't know about it. And I think in the teams um, and among the riders, its deterrence was the fact that people didn't really know how it worked or what people were looking for. I don't know if they're any clearer now. We don't hear many cases of riders being caught, um, and it we're probably due a bit of a refresher on the
3: biological passport. Actually, I, I, I've, I've made an appointment with Xavier Bigar, who is the head of the uh, Medical UCI uh, Commission, uh, to discuss just uh, well this and other issues. Uh, about COVID and uh, and uh, you know uh, lots of other. I I, I, I talked to uh, Bigard uh, a few uh, you know f- two or three years ago before he became he joined the UCI. He was uh, he was working for the French doping anti-doping uh, agency, and and so and basically the bio- biological passport. First of all, you can't re- re- reveal what's in there because you've got medical secret, and that's that's uh, that's a, 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 a given that you're not disclosing to the public private medical information. So don't expect one day to see uh, mitch Docker's <laughs> biological passport and the internet because it's not you know it's against the 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 the, the, the general rules of uh, medicine throughout the world but but the, the, what what the biological uh, passport have, I, I I know because Bigard told me that it's improving every year. They know what they are looking for. They're looking for, for you know parameters in in the in the in the in the blood and in the, uh, of the riders and lo- lots uh, of things. It was never used and it was never seen as an evidence to tell a, a rider you're on dope, you should be banned. It's always been used as kind of a lead to to think this guy is doing something strange and we're going to uh target him for you know doping control so it's never been it's a tool to help you uh, you know uh, catch a, a thief but it's never been uh considered even legally as as uh, you know as enough evidence to 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 tell a guy you're off for two years because your biological passport is is strange so as far as i know it's, it's it keeps going i mean you must i suppose Mitch, you you must give your you know blood samples every what four or five times a year i think
2: yeah it's that's exactly right exactly what you said is what the idea of the blood passport is to look for the irregular irregularities i can't get that word out but we get quarterlies for a year But also the random tests you have go into that passport as well. So there's a minimum of four a year that you have to submit. And then, you know, depending how many other times you're getting blood tested, all that gets added in there and all that is accumulated and taken into consideration of what's going on, you know, to see massive spikes or massive dips leading into races and out of races.
1: I guess you've lived with it your whole professional career. Looking forward to getting off the old water trick- system. Trick- I can trick- tell you right well, now. Yeah, I, had to, I had to give you all your hotels and everything yeah. I, in advance. It was it required a level of organisation from the cycling podcast that we're not <laughs> we're not used to. You, you gave to, me the
2: worst. You gave me the worst things. You sent me screenshots. I couldn't copy and paste the addresses. <laughs> sorry, sorry, manually I mean, did ma- work? I had to manually sorry.
1: type the addresses in. Oh, I'm sorry about <laughs> that. But yeah, it's um. I mean, it'd be quite exciting for us if the drug testers come up one appear one morning at our hotel. I did it five front. a.m. Yeah. I made sure. I was like you know what we could be uh,
2: recording a late podcast suspicious one night. blood alcohol levels <laughs> <laughs> well, i was actually on the first um well not the first but one of the first waves of whatever you want to call it asada Adams, whatever it is back in it would have been 2003 in australia and that was all manual by paper and i found it just the other day my old biological passport it's literally a passport um with a photo on the front and all your data would be written in there. And mm. that's, I guess, where the names come from. And when you used to fill out three months in advance on paper and you would fax it in, and I was like, how did I even know where I was? Yeah. You know, the <laughs> testing just wasn't as mm. accurate
1: then. Um, if they went out and they got you, that was a bit more lenient. But, you know, it's come a long way. Do, do the writer, without knowing, being the, as in the dark as anybody else, do, do you feel that the, for the writers it, it's an effective tool, that, it, that it, it does act as a deterrent? Is that the sense that you get? Within the within the peloton, that people aren't willing to to that it's risk helped, it that now. It, I guess that it, I mean the, 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 the question asked by the listener was that his sense well his his sense is that the sport is cleaner and it's as a result of the biological passport. Would you agree with that?
2: I think so. Yeah, I think not only just the biological passport, but just the um, the the amount that I'm tested has gone up tenfold. Like I'm tested minimum fifteen times a year minimum you know and that's me i'm just some you know shit kicker in the bunch you know those guys who are up there every day they get tested after every stage plus all the random tested testing they get during the year and you know when you almost like you're hot for some reason and you get like two three t- four tests in within a week or two so it is it's a stressful thing as a writer not only the testing but missing or putting your your information incorrectly
1: that's a big stress mm, mm. and thinking about that because the the consequences of that are huge yeah um yeah consequences financial reputational and, and everything
3: there, there was also a, a well not a rumor but a, a, a notion that that the, the 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 shift may be towards uh technological doping i mean you know dope the bikes instead of doping the guys my, 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 yeah. Go and check that bike, Francois. <laughs> sitting there in the corner. Yeah, m- might have come from all those, you know, measures that made it more difficult to 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 actually make a difference with, you know, chemicals, as opposed to uh, putting a motor in your bike. Well, I was a victim of a technological fraud
1: last week on the rest day when the kind of Quickstep went zooming past me and mm. a climb on their e-bikes. <laughs> Today, I got much closer to Tim De Klerk on Strava uh, out on my ride <laughs> in one section of the climb. Um, something completely different to that, I, I need to mention, tomorrow's to Zero is the next installment of the Riders' Diaries. Tim DeClerk's had a really tough few days, he sent us in a, a diary entry today, and really interesting, talks about baseline testing that he did over the winter um, for as part of the concussion protocol, and he felt quite dizzy after his crash of the other day and was tested against that baseline, and given they all clear to carry on. I thought that was quite interesting. He talks a bit about that in the diary. Tomorrow, that's part of our Kilometer Zero series. Today's episode was an interview with a a very British winemaker, Robert Eden, a great character who we met. I I wouldn't like to see his blood blood passport, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not. Not after an (laughs) afternoon watching the Tour de France. Um, Mitch, um, the other question was about the temperature of bidons. I'm always surprised how much money teams spend on
2: ice. I don't know what the figure is, but it's a lot. Because what they do is the the eskies or the cool... I don't know what else you call them. We call them in Australia, eskies. So the cool boxes, there you go. The cool boxes, they, they fill them with ice the night before. They shut them up. All the bins are ready the night before, fully iced. And the next, in the morning, they'll re-ice them again. And so the bottles start cold. But as the day goes on, they become warm. They're never warm. In the Vuelta, when I was in Mitchelton, we used to have ice biddens. And that was just simply a half frozen bidden with a half bit of uh, water or mix or whatever. And they would be almost like a slushy. Um, the problem is, if the bottle is too cold, you know, has anyone tried to scull a, a slurpee or an ice, uh, an ice drink from the petrol station? That hurts the head. You know, so you want it cold, but you don't want... And actually, it's, if you put a cold bidden over your head, it's that feeling like if you have a cold shower or you jump in a cold pool, the loss of breath. Mm. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's um, it's pretty cold. So answer your question, it depends on how well organised your team is and how much importance
1: they put on cold bottles. No ice cold bidons in the cycling podcast car, that's for sure, uh, just very warm bottles of water that have been sitting there for several days. But anyway, <laughs> <Gross>. um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, we should wrap things up. We have to go for go for dinner tonight. Um somewhere nice. I think we're going to the same place as last night yeah, first. So cool. we struck yeah, gold, didn't we? Yeah. So go back there um introduce Mitch to life with the cycling podcast at the Tour de France. Great to have you with us. And we're you know, we're we're looking forward to your company this week and to seeing what you know having failed to get all the, the the big interviews the last couple of weeks, we're using you as our sort of honeypot mm. in, the, in the mix zone. Um, we'll just sort of hold you in front of us and hope that the, I mean, question for you, who would you most like to, inter- these interviews in, in the mix zone are not life in the Peloton style, mm. um, you know, sit down deep interviews. They are three or four minutes of snatch conversations. You have to be really kind of focused, it's a very different art to the, the mix zone interview. But who would you like to, is there a rider you'd like to maybe grab? I wouldn't mind, I know you've spoken to them quite a lot this week, but I
2: really love and I've been so impressed with the with that Quick Step train. What they're doing, and that's something that's a bit more in my area of one, expertise and love. Don't get me wrong, I like watching the mountain stages, but when a sprint stage is on, I love seeing that. I, love, I really want to speak to Michael, Michael Morkov because... I often would speak to him after a sprint stage in the race and he would run me through what happened. We were in both in the same race, that is. And be like, mate, what did you do there? Oh, how did that go? Oh, I was on your wheel on the right. And yeah, oh yeah, saw so you went through that corner. So I'd love to talk to him about some of that stuff. Cav, how he's feeling there. Maybe Andre. would love to have a chat with uh, Andre Greipel. I spoke to him a couple of years ago. Um, got a good connection with him and just see how he's going how he's finding not being behind a sprint train how he's finding being in a different team and still striving to win stages here he's not just floating around or getting getting through it mm. maybe chris froome how he's going not being at the front actually in group edo sometimes getting dropped how that's handling how his ego is with that great um, woodsy got to chat
1: to him too yeah brilliant oh you're gonna be busy <laughs> Francois and I can take it easy.
3: We we will. No, no.
1: (laughs) This is going to be excellent. Looking forward to it. And I've got your press pass next door, Mitch. So as soon as you're wearing that, you've crossed over. There's no going back. Well, there is going back, obviously. The golden lanyard. Yes, the golden (laughs) lanyard. Thank you very much, Mitch. Thank you, Francois. Cheers.